Okay, John 6, 22 through 40. Hear now the word of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread of life, the Lord had given uh, the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, on him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that... You have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said... Praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, as we walk through this text, I just pray that you impress upon our hearts the truth of the gospel in an eye-opening, heart-stirring way this morning, that we just have a deeper understanding and with that appreciation of your love for us, of your calling on our lives, of the goodness of the good news of the gospel, just set our hearts aflame with love for you this morning. I pray that as I speak, I would decrease, Lord Jesus, you must increase. We ask it in your name, Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, the text begins, if you remember last week, Jamie uh, took us through this, um, the disciples going out in the boat to cross um, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus shows up walking on the water, and they invite him into the boat where he comforts them in the midst of the storm. And some great takeaways there, that um, it's in the midst of the storm that we remember Jesus hasn't left us, and he may not calm the wind and the waves in our storms when we want him to, but the promise is he'll be there with us. And then the scene shifts back to those who were just fed in the feeding of the 5,000, which is 5,000 families, probably about 20,000 folks. And this great miracle that he did, and the scene shifts back to those who had been left on the shore. And it says of them that uh, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. So they knew that the disciples went away, Jesus should be among them. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after Jesus had given thanks. And when they saw Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, so they see a phenomenon that one boat left with the disciples. Jesus wasn't with them, but now Jesus is gone. They don't understand, so they 
Uber some rides with these other boats and they get themselves over to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now I just wanna kinda pause there and there's a world of theology in this little phrase, seeking Jesus. I just wanna say a few things. I think there's a brand of Christianity today because we're gonna see evidence of it in these, um, these men and women who are seeking him. We don't know it yet, we're going to see in the next two verses, it's really for the wrong reasons. There's a, a brand of Christianity that seeks Jesus for what he can do for us, like the, like the perks for how he can make our lives more comfortable or get us the next promotion or uh, take away a sickness or disease. Certainly things he can do, but seeking him for the blessings that he might give us versus seeking him for what he has already done for us. There's a brand of Christianity that thereby peddles Christ as kind of this um, cosmic handyman who exists to fix your problems, the concierge on your cruise to make your life smoother, the, the clown at the circus to put a smile on your face. And it's just not, that's just not how the Bible puts forth Jesus, certainly not how Jesus puts forth Jesus. Uh, he's, he didn't come just merely to fix our circumstances and make this life easier. It goes along with what we saw last week in the storms. He didn't come to calm the wind and the waves of your life, to be in those storms with you, to change not your circumstances but your heart so that you experience your circumstances very differently and are full and satisfied in his presence in the midst of them. So this Jesus, he's, he's God in flesh. He came down and lived the life that you and I cannot live and then took our place in judgment. I'm in all of his life, I'm in all of his death, I'm in all that on the third day he rose from the dead. I'm in all to the point that I look at him as the God-man who satisfied the wrath of God by his own death for my sin and I worship. And I say, my life is yours because you gave your life for me. He is not just at my whimsical desire to fix my problems. He has already fixed my problems. And my life is to serve him. Okay, so there's a brand of Christianity, kind of a made in America Christianity that has a lot of folks coming, um, merely looking for uh, Jesus to fix their latest problem. And if he fixes it, they'll probably disappear for a while until the next problem arises. That, that, that kind of Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, is what's going to come into focus in this text. And by the way, I, I don't know where this fits in, but I felt impressed upon to say it. I think it's related to this idea of seeking Jesus and the importance of really seeking Jesus. I, I met a young man in the doorway right back there in between services last week, and it's a young man who had come up a couple months ago and said, I mean, I'm really down, I'm despairing, I'm struggling, I'm... I've got a bunch of sin in my life, I don't know what to do. And man, he was, he was just hurting, he was broken, and we've met between then and now, and, and then I, uh, I saw him in the back, and man, he was just alive and light on his feet, and there was this glow about him. I said, how are you? Man, he said, man, I'm doing so much better. I said, what, you know, what's kind of, what, what, what? And he said, man, I've just been able to let go of some things and trust Jesus with those things. And man, it's just, God, I don't know, man, I'm just, just kind of being freed up. And I just thought about, this is a guy who's really seeking Jesus. Like, like not just, hey, Jesus, fix this problem, Jesus, take away this pain, Jesus, get me a better circumstance, but he's kind of at the end of his 
pursuit of the things of this world, which are leaving him despairing, going, you know what, I'm kind of letting go of some of those things I thought gave me life, and I'm laying hold of him who really does give life. And I'm telling you, that, that, you know what was happening? Transformation. And he, you could just see it all over his face, by the way. It was beautiful. I, I thought about our prayer service a few weeks ago. So many confess these strongholds of sin in their life, these areas where... Satan has a stronghold in your life. And, um, and, and in 2 Timothy uh, 10, we see that uh, uh, Jesus has come to demolish those strongholds. But I just want to say this on Seeking Jesus. I just want to say that, that, that we can't really um, quit uh, pursuing those things, those um, sinful tendencies we might have or, or, or addictions. We can't quit pursuing those merely and solely apart from laying hold of the pursuit of him who gives life. You can't quit pursuing those things that are killing you without pursuing the one who gives you life. Like you, you just won't be able to, um, to quit. You won't be able to demolish that stronghold of sin in your life unless you're replacing those pursuits with a legitimate pursuit of Christ. You won't have success there unless you're effective here. It's not just a quit, it's a replace. Like there's gotta be an honest, wholehearted, full-throated pursuit of Christ. And so I just want to ask the question right here in the text. The phrase just brought it to mind and messed me up this week. Are we really seeking him? That's an active pursuit. Are you really after Christ? Like this crowd is after Christ, we're going to see for the wrong reasons. But they were willing to get in boats and travel across the sea and look for him who they thought could satisfy through worldly means. They rightly understood the world couldn't satisfy. They wrongly thought that Jesus would satisfy through giving them more earthly perks. But what about you and I? Are we even seeking? Is there a pursuit? Is it daily? Is it moment by moment? Is it a realization that I'll never be free apart from the pursuit of Christ and the fullness of him? So to seek Jesus. Now, Jesus is gonna explain what that does and doesn't mean here, so let's follow along. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Which, I mean, they're just kind of like, hey, you know, what? How'd you get here? Like, we, you weren't in the boat that left. What, what are you doing? All right, Jesus answers them, 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He, he doesn't even waste any time on their question. <laughs> uh, and it's because he sees their heart. If you are seeking Christ, this morning you're here you may not even know why you're here. You may know you're here in pursuit of, of, uh, of something Christ can do for you. You may hear, be here broken and sinning at the end of your rope. I don't know, but I know this. If you're seeking Jesus, he knows your motive. He knows your heart. I don't. I don't. I can't, I can't see what's going on inside. But Jesus knows the difference in one who comes hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And by the way, you'll get it in Christ and the one who comes for something else, something lesser, some fleshly, carnal, worldly perk, some relief, some circumstantial change. He knows the difference. And this crowd came, he said, you came because you had your bellies filled and you want more of that which will only temporarily satisfy and temporally satisfy and that which eternally satisfies. You're after me for the wrong reasons. Let me just stop you now, crowd. You're missing it. You're missing me for who I really am. You didn't come because the miracle was to authenticate the idea that he's the Messiah. Lay hold of him and have life abundant and life eternal because he has met you in your spiritual need with the righteousness of God. He's the fulfillment of the covenant, the fulfillment of the law. They've totally missed that. They thought he has the fountain of youth. 
They thought he's got some magic breath. They're gonna keep saying, hey, well give us some more of this magic stuff you got. They can't, they can't see yet, they're spiritually blind. He comes out, he starts by, he sees their heart, and there's a rebuke with that. Um, by the way, over and over, Jesus, he always knows where the, where the sincere seeker really is. I thought of when he went to Jerusalem, uh, I'm sorry, coming into Jericho, and the crowds were so uh, thick that he was having a hard time going, and he looks up into a tree, and he calls a man down. Zacchaeus? Everybody's like, Zacchaeus. <laughs> uh, he calls Zacchaeus down and says, hey, uh, I want to dine with you today. He knew out of all these hundreds, maybe thousands, there was, there was a wee man in a tree whose heart was broke who wanted what he really came to offer. And Zacchaeus repented that day of his sin. A great story. Repents, pays back everyone that which he's cheated them. And, and, and by the way, true faith Saving faith is always followed by a, a repentant life. So by the way, I can't see on the front end why you're after Christ, but we're, we're to judge one another by the fruits. We can see on the back end, if you come to receive Christ and then continue to live on in unrepentant sin in pursuit of the things of this world, then it would show that you didn't come sincerely, repentantly to receive Christ because there's no evidence of that lifestyle of repentance flowing from there. Someone that's just living in sin, reveling in sin, is not someone who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ. There's a promise of sanctification for those who receive true salvation in Jesus Christ. He who saves will sanctify. Another time he was traveling along the road and there was the, the, uh, the crowd pressing in so tight and he stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what? A ton of people are touching you. He said, no, there's one who came in faith. I felt the power go out of me, turn, and there was a, a woman who had been bleeding. And there was something different about her touch than all the crowds that just wanted an autograph. He knew the one who came in faith. He always does. He always does. And here's the rebuke he gives these crowds, 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. He's merciful enough to not merely tell them they're coming to the wrong reasons, but, but, but give them some context. You're coming, you're working for food that perishes. In other words, you're after that which will never satisfy. It's not just food for you and I. It's, it's, it's anything of this world. It's money. It's, it's material goods. It's fame. It's comfort. Don't spend your life after those things which don't ultimately satisfy says, that's, that would be food that perishes. Don't work for that, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which means there is food that satisfies now and forever, which the Son of Man will give to you. And by the way, only the Son of Man can give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And you remember when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, the heavens opened, the, the dove descended, the Spirit descended as a dove and lighted on him, and the voice of the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The seal was on him. This is the one who was sent as the bread of life. This is the one who was sent as the substitute atonement for your sin. That he who had no sin might become sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. This is he upon whom my seal is set. No one else can provide for you that which is eternal life. That bread will only be found in him upon whom my seal is set. 
So by the way, it's Jesus. Now, let's look at their response here. Actually, I'm compelled to say one more word on this. The, the, reason, the reason this is so, when we sin, understand this, the, um, the temptation would be to think in the cultural commentary from non-believers and even many believers, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, professing believers, I need to clarify that, is the idea that good people go to heaven. If you just listen to almost anybody talk about anything on the news or just you know, any TV show, that's kind of the idea that, um, that, that, that the good people evidenced by good works are the ones that God will take care of. And the idea in scripture is just so radically different. The idea in scripture is that every single one of us have sinned. It's in thought, it's in deed, it's in motive, we've sinned. And that sin separates us from God because he's holy. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. All, none have understood, all have gone astray. All have turned aside. All of us in the same boat in need. Sin separates us from a holy God. And it says in the scriptures that there's a wage of our sin. The wage is death. It's an eternal separation. We're stuck, separated from him who is holy. Enough good works doesn't somehow make us holy. We are already sinful. It's, our, it's, it's in our DNA from the moment we're born. If you have children, you can amen that. And then volitionally, we sin. I won't go a day without a thought that's not godly in nature. There's just, I'm just sinful. And yet, get this, the only way that I might be restored in the right relationship with God would be that the wages of my sin, which are death, are somehow paid. Like my sin must be paid for in full. And it must be paid for by someone who does not have his own debt to pay. So there must be one born of a virgin with no sin of his own, willing to go to the cross and die that my sin might be tetelestai, paid in full. And then I put my trust, not in my good works, but in the finished work of him who paid my debt. That's really good news. Paul says in chapter, Romans chapter three that there's a righteousness apart from the law. And we go, wow. What the law was powerless to do, Christ has done on our behalf. Now, that's the good news of the gospel. They're not getting it. What should, they, what should they say right here when he tells them there's food that endures to eternal life and I've got it? They should say, we repent of our sin. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. No, here's what they say instead. They said to him, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? So they still have a mentality, an old covenant mentality. Well, tell us what we must do. This is the classic question from the classic non-believer. What do we need to do to be saved? Okay, reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. What must I do to be saved? That's a flawed question. The question presumes that you can do a certain amount of good works that would please God and somehow satisfy his wrath against your sin apart from an atoning sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, a covering of blood. There's not. And so here's the question. This is a critical question that you need to have answered this morning. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, here's the work of God. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
You can't do enough good works, but you can trust in the finished work of the one who has worked on your behalf. So, and by the way, he calls it work right there. He says, here's the work. You want the work? The work is this, believe. And we know believing itself is not a work. Ephesians chapter two, eight, nine, is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. Even your believing is the gift of God to you. That you might be illumined to the truth of God, convicted over your sin, and call upon Jesus. That's the gift of God. And by the way, this text is pretty clear. There's no, uh, there's no other way to be full, to be satisfied, to have the bread of life. There's no other way to be restored in right relationship with God. It is through him, through believing on him. Any amount of good works apart from belief will leave you in an eternal separation from God. Trusting in him as your righteousness will secure your salvation now and forever. That's our gospel. That's our good news. And look what, look what he goes on to say. Look how they answer. They said, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Like, like uh, what work do you perform? Give us something here. It, it, I feel like he just did a pretty big work. All right? Like, don't you guys remember yesterday? By the way, those who just want the perks, it, it, it doesn't matter how many signs Jesus will do. He'll do plenty. The ultimate sign, as he says, will be the sign of Jonah, that he'll be raised after three days. And still the crowds will not believe upon him. I'm going to tell you why in a second. He's going to tell you why in a second. But they want a sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, there's not too many things that Jesus gets upset about, but whenever you're stealing glory from God, he gets upset. And so he interjects here, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave them bread from heaven. Like, don't, don't, don't take that glory from God. It was God. It was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. So all of a sudden, he takes their question about who they thought Moses feeding them. He says, look, it wasn't Moses, it was God. And God gives you not merely a bread that physically, incompletely, and temporally sustains. He gives you a true bread, which by metaphor would mean it spiritually, completely, and spiritually fills and sustains. There's a true bread. It was God that gave the manna in the wilderness, and it's God that gives the true bread. Well, what is the true bread? Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Philippians 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being found in human likeness and being found in the form of a human. He humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even death on a cross. He died that we might have life. He came down and died that we might live. How do we know who the bread of life is? He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the only one who will ever satisfy your longings, your needs, your desires, your unfulfillment in the things of this world. When you come to the end of yourself, now you're able to feast on him who is life. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. It's a funky way to ask the question, and it kind of shows that they still don't get it. Give us this bread always, like, again, they're still, they're still looking for the fountain of youth, they're still looking for the perk. 
And we know that because of how Jesus responds in 35. By the way, the reason they can't see, and let me just, let me just preface Jesus' response, the reason they can't he- understand, like, like they're not hearing him the way you're hearing him now. They're seeing him, but they're not seeing him. They're hearing him, but they're not understanding him. And it's because they are spiritually blind, and they're spiritually blind because they're spiritually dead. You must understand this. Jesus is going to take their spiritual blindness and their spiritual deadness, and he's going to take that and he's going to use it and he's going to preach. In light of your blindness, which is evidence of your deadness, in light of the I am speaking to you about what's ultimately and eternally true and offering myself, and you can't see and you can't hear, here's what's happening. All right, Jesus. He said to them, I am the bread of life. By the way, first of seven I am statements. God told Moses in Exodus, you tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. I am. It's God's self-identifiable name. Jesus is going to say, I am, seven times. Seven I am statements. Seven, the perfect number of God. He's, he's intentionally making sure that you know he is declaring himself deity. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We know he's not talking merely about prosperity. We know he's not merely talking about you'll never go without the things you want in life. You'll never be uncomfortable. Look no further than John the Baptist in jail said, Jesus, are you really the one? He said, I am the one. He quoted Isaiah the prophet, but, and I've come to set the prisoners free, but I'm not going to set you free. Why? I don't, know, I don't know the eternal purpose of God, but John the Baptist, be faithful to the end, brother. And he will. He will. That's why Jesus has such high praise for John the Baptist. No one like him up until that day, Jesus said. All right. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Not here just to fill your belly. I'm talking about, I'm talking about a desire for true life. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Okay, your hearts are hardened. You've seen me and you have not believed. And then he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father give me, he's saying, you standing before me now, hoping that I will fill your belly and make your life easier and more comfortable, that I'll do miracles for your comfort. Let me tell you what, you're hardened, you're blind, you're dead. But I'll say this, all that the Father give to me will come. Now, I'm stopping at verse 40 today, but let me just grab verse 44 to clarify this further. In 44, he will say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Put these statements together. No one can come unless the Father draws him. All that the Father draw will come. Now listen to me. Jesus is saying that the estate of man before God is spiritually blind. It is dead. We are enemies of God. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. That's the estate of all man in our sin, unless or until a sovereign and merciful God initiates a spiritual 
illumination, an awakening, a regeneration in your heart. No one can come unless the Father draws him. But when God does it, when he begins the spiritual work of regeneration in your heart, all that my Father call will come to me. Jesus is not worried about if his presentation of himself as the bread of life was lesser than. He didn't feel a great need to clarify any further. He just preached on what's true of man, dead in sin until God turns the lights on. Salvation is completely of God. Now, there may be some out there, well, what about the verses and what about the sermons where Jesus says, uh, uh, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and whosoever believes on him will be saved, Acts 2.21. Or Jesus in Matthew 11, whosoever's tired or hungry, come to me. By the way, the gospel call is big enough for everyone, for anyone and everyone, but that doesn't take away from the fact that no one will come unless the Father draws them. And anyone the Father draws will come. By the way, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not preaching a, 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 a theology of a, of a reformer and of a flawed man and trying to make sense of his uh, interpretation. This is Jesus' words. And I don't think he could be much clearer in this text. And I want you to hear that the scripture gives us, composite, a picture before us of a savior who beckons us. But that's only half the story. Because it also gives us a picture of a father behind who compels us. And I want you to know that if you are a redeemed, regenerated, converted, born again, recreated, new creation in Christ, then you can stand on the rock of truth that the Lord God sovereignly and mercifully compelled you to Christ in an irresistible way, and that the reason you received Jesus wasn't because you're smarter than your neighbor, wasn't because you're better than your neighbor, but was because God mercifully acted upon your behalf to remove the scales, to illumine you to the truth of your own sin, that he is the bread of life, and you said yes, and you couldn't say no. Christ was so beautiful, and you said, life is in you. And that is the work of God. Who gets credit for your salvation? It's not your grandmom who first taught you to memorize scripture. It's not the pastor that preached the sermon that you responded to. It's the Lord God who turned on lights. And it gets better because he says this. He says, all that the Father give me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. <laughs> Gosh. This is so great. God does this work that is so undeserving, this work of grace in my life. And he, and he reveals my sinfulness and my need. He reveals the beauty of Christ in the gospel. He draws me 
kicking and screaming to the cross. And he brings me to avail myself before the throne of grace and to receive life in Christ. And then he changes my mind about everything in this world. And he lets me see, and I can even see myself when I couldn't see. And then he says, now that you're mine, you're mine forever. I won't ever cast you out. What about when I stumble? Won't cast you out. What about when I wander? Won't let go of you. What about when I forsake you? I'll never forsake you. You and I didn't earn our salvation, and you know what? By God's grace, we can't lose it. Can't lose it. If he has saved you, you know what the text says? If he saves you, he'll keep you. You know what he goes on to say? For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the why. This is the Father's will. That's why, that's why I'll go all the way to the cross. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Those the Father call will come. Those who come will be saved. Those who he saves, he will keep. Those who he keeps, he'll raise up on the last day. I don't know how you feel about this. I'm overwhelmed by the mercy of God. You know what, you know what it means that he'll raise you up on the last day? <laughs> this is great. Uh, it says in 1 Thess 4, um, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to read further, it says there'll be a trumpet blast and the heavens will open and Christ will come again. And it says on that day, those who are still here, those who are left in that day as believers, we will put down, it will be an amazing thing. We will put down these earthly bodies. We will be caught up to heaven and we will be given a body, a glorified body. He'll raise us up. But by the way, it says we won't precede the dead in Christ. They'll go first. So if you die, you are immediately in the presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 says that. Thief on the cross. You're in paradise. You're with Jesus. That's where you are. Your spirit is with him. But that's not the end of the story. They'll lay this old body down with all of its uh, effects of sin. Its slow, rotting, decaying flesh will be laid in the ground. Your spirit will be with Christ in paradise. And then one glorious day, he who saved you and he who keeps you will raise you up. First Corinthians 15, he'll give you a body imperishable to live in his presence for all of eternity. He'll do it. You don't have to live in fear of that. That day's coming. How do you know? It's coming for you. Have you been satisfied in Christ? If so, then the Father mercifully called you. And he who called you saved you. And he who saved you is now keeping you. And he who's keeping you will raise you up the last day. Can I, can I explain to you uh, uh, the, the picture of our salvation? Borrowing from Paul in Ephesians 2, he says this, as for you, and as for me, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Get that. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now work in those, at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time. All of us gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of them, we were objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. 
It is by grace you have been saved. And he will raise us up with Christ that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What a salvation that he who called saved and he who saved keeps and he who keeps will raise us up. The incomparable riches of Christ are ours. And we boast in him alone, because it was not by works, not by my works, it was by his work, the finished work of Christ. Well, here's how he closes it. For this is the will of my Father, verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I wish I could have heard the tone in Jesus' voice right there. You know what my Father's will is? Everyone who looks and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up. I bet there was some teeth in that. That's the ESV I'm reading. If you, if you look at that word looks, and I'm closing with this, if you look at that word looks, if you're in an NASB or, or a, uh, some kind of a very close literal translation, an NASB being word by word instead of phrase by phrase, you would actually notice a different word right there instead of looks. The word actually is beholds. And it's a, there's a difference. These folks looked at Christ, but they couldn't see him. To behold is to see something in all of its majesty. There's a great difference. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he doesn't say look. He says, behold, like look upon Christ, the Messiah, the Passover lamb. Behold, it's to look at something in all of its majesty. I had the chance to take my boys to a Grizz game. I think it was in earlier this season, or maybe it was even last season playing a team, I'm pretty sure it's the Bucks. I hope I don't mess up my illustration here, but they have a player on their team named Giannis. Last name's very difficult, but I think it's Ante Tacumpu, something to that effect. I'd like to see you do any better. And uh, this guy's nickname is the Greek Freak, because he's Greek and he's just a freak. And he's an unbelievable player. My boys just can't, you know, they just, this guy, he's on Sports Center highlights. They, they've seen him. They, they know of him. They speak of him. You know, he's just kind of like larger in life. And so we got tickets to this game. They were so excited about seeing the Greek freak in action. And we got there, and the Grizzlies are warming up, and and uh, and man, they're leaning up. And they're standing up on the seats, just looking at the tunnel. I'm like, hey guys, they're they're shooting out here. They're like, yeah, but any minute he's going to appear. And I'm like, well, guys, look at this. Mike, Mike Conley's out there making some shots. No, Dad, just, just wait. Shh, shh. And then here come the Bucks, and here come a couple guys. Then all of a sudden, apparently, he appears. Dad, there he is, the Greek freak. Comes out, and my, my guys are little guys. They, they're just like on their toes watching him warm up. I'm going, all right, guys, settle down, settle down, settle down. Come on. We're rooting for the Grizz. And uh, first quarter's going, you know, he's not getting involved that much, but their eyes are glued. Like, the ball could be over here, he's over there, they're just like. And I remember the first time we threw a bad pass, if you were there, you might remember this, and he intercepted it. And my boys were just 
like just rocketed out of their seats. Here he comes in the fast break and just does some kind of, you know, what I do on their little Nerf hoops on the bunk beds. He did one. And they're going, Dad, the Greek freak. (laughs) They saw the Grizz that night, but they beheld the Greek freak. (laughs) They beheld him. Can I tell you something? It says right here, everyone who beholds the Son. I want him. Where is he? I'm seeking. I want more. I want Jesus. They see him. They're like, Dad, gosh, can you see him? The bread of life come from above. For our sake, he left heaven. He humbled himself. He was a babe wrapped in flesh in a manger. He was persecuted in every way imaginable, misunderstood, spat upon. He was strung up on a cross. Can you believe it? He rose on the third day. He appeared to many. He commissioned his disciples. He appeared to heaven. He says, I'm coming back. And we say, where is he? Those who behold the Son and believe in him, you know what it says? Should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You won't be disappointed if your hope is in Christ. He's the bread of life. You'll be satisfied for all of eternity. Amen? Father, let us be people who have an insatiable appetite for you. Let us not be in any way satisfied with anything, with any other pursuit. Let us vacate every pursuit of the things of this world in order to wholeheartedly pursue you. God, you have already hardwired into us as humans that we are never satisfied apart from you, outside of you. Our hearts are made to be satisfied only in you who are above creation, who are the creator. And so anyone here today who still hungers and who still thirsts, who is not satisfied, let them see Christ and let the scales fall from their eyes. Do now the work of regeneration. Mercifully call that some might be saved, truly saved, truly his, that you would keep him or her and raise him or her on that last day. God, as we open these communion tables, for your people, for those who are satisfied in Jesus, we take crackers, we take juice, and we are reminded of your sacrifice. We rejoice in it. We delight in it. We remember that life is found in you. You died that we might have life. We celebrate. Thank you for this demonstration, this reminder of the grace of our salvation. Lord, for anyone who is here, It's never tasted the true bread, the bread from heaven, the bread of life. Let them come hungry and let them leave satisfied. Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.